Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey Griefsters, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your continued amazing support of the new series. It is so appreciated. I wasn't sure if recording a series in lockdown was a good idea, um, but I'm really glad we did it. I think it's uh, I mean, it's always a good time to talk about death, but particularly at the moment. If you have been enjoying the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. If you've done it already, thank you so much. But it really makes a difference to help other people find the show. So thank you so much. That is much appreciated. We have a live show coming up. Yes, a live live show the london podcast festival 21st of september at king's place i will be talking to sarah pasco athena Kablenu, and darren harriet uh, about death and such things now obviously you can come and see it socially distanced but we are also streaming online so you can watch it online from wherever you are head to the king's place website kingsplace.co.uk for more information this week i'm talking to social entrepreneur and writer lee lawrence Lee is the son of Cherry Gross, and as you'll hear in the interview, you might recognise that name. Cherry was wrongly shot by police during a raid in her Brixton home in 1985. She actually passed away many years later, and Lee has just written a book called The Louder I Will Sing that is out on the 17th of September. I, as ever, can't recommend it enough. It is an incredible story, as you will hear. Lee came in to talk to me about Cherry and his incredible, incredible story of surviving that trauma and the eventual grief after she passed away. Lockdown has been strange, right? Strange, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's been some negative things about lockdown and COVID. Mm. I've lost a few people during this time. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. My father included. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's been crazy in, 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 yeah. in that respect. Gosh, what a time, what an intense time you've had. So, um, I mean, that, you know, isn't who we're here to talk about. Lee, who are we specifically remembering today? So, my mum. Your mum, yes. which is Cherry, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I love that name. Oh, thank it's you. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's so nice. Thank you. So, some people may know that name already, but would you mind telling us why perhaps that name is known to some people already, Cherry Gross? So, my mum, Cherry Gross, is, is, is more known for um, being the woman who was shot in front of her children by the police in 1985 
which then sparked the 1985 Brixton uprisings. Yeah, so that's probably where people may remember my mother's name mm. from and would associate her to that injustice, essentially, um, which yeah. happened thir- almost th- 35 years ago now. Almost 35 years. It's interesting. It's, you know, obviously, uh, we will talk about this, you know, we are dealing with these situations still uh, uh, very recently with the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened, the murder of George Floyd. And I certainly was having conversations with people who were saying things like, oh, well, you know, it's not as bad here. And I think it's really important to remember Cherry and 1985 not being that long ago and what was happening here and what is still happening here. I think sometimes we have a bit of a myopic view of our own history of like, oh, well, we're not, we're not like that, you know, but yeah, obviously I think for some people that they won't even know that that, that had happened in 1985. Exactly. Um, so were you one of those children? Did you see it happen, if you don't mind me asking? Yes, so I was one of those children. I was 11 at the time. Um, oh, Lee. And I was in the room um, when my mum got shot. So mm. it was a really um, horrific and traumatic incident at the time. Yes. Oh, my goodness yeah. me. Do you, and I'm, I'm, you know, please say if anything is like, because sometimes with these things, there's a, there's a human want to know information and not always a need, <laughs> but like, was it a sort of relatively normal situation before the, you know, suddenly the police were in your house? Was it a complete, things are fine, things are suddenly not fine? Absolutely. I had just turned 11. I'd started secondary school. It was like my maybe second week in secondary mm. school. Um, so I was just trying to settle in to that new environment. On the weekend, I would normally be on my BMX bike in the, in the sort of, they used to have this kind of skateboard bowlers park around the back of where we lived and a and youth centre. So I'd spend most of my um, evenings and weekends around there mixing with other children in the area. And, um, and although we, we didn't have much the area which we lived in had a real community spirit. Everybody looked out mm. for each other and we played out in the streets. Um, my door was never locked, so we felt safe. And then, you know, this incident happened which just flipped it on its head and turned my life around and it was never the same ever again. 11 is a really, oh my God, there's no good age to see that. <laughs> But 11, like you said, you're such on the, on the cusp of growing up. And it must have, I imagine, it must have made you grow up very quickly, very suddenly to go from like, yeah, me and my BMX, that's what I'm worrying about. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do this weekend? To suddenly seeing that. I just, oh, Lee, the trauma that you must have gone through, that all of you must have gone through. It, I went from being, you know, a child who had very childlike thoughts you could say. Mm. Um, I actually wanted to be a police officer when I was young and I was into all the, the cop programs, Starsky and Hutch, <laughs> fun, was, um, Chips and oh, yeah. <laughs> Coljack and Cadney and Lacey, all those old cop programs. I, was, I used to re- really love those programs and would role play all the time in my house. So I went from being this kid who was like, yeah, you know, I want to get the bad guy, you know, mm. and to seeing the pe- people who, in your eyes, were the good guys, come in your house and do something terrible, you know, to, to, to your mum in front of you. And I think the incident was, was bad enough witnessing, but it was in, in the immediate aftermath, there was no empathy or sympathy for what mm. had just happened. You know, I was screaming and shouting at the time, hysterically. And the police officer who shot my mum said, someone better shut this fucking kid up, basically. You know, like, as if to say, my screaming was annoying him, you know? And it was in that moment that I realised that this was just so wrong. It wasn't just an accident. This was something Mm. that, you know, as I said, there there was no sense of remorse, no sense of, okay, this is an innocent woman, this is, this is children. There was no sense of that at the time. 
and that was that was hurtful. That was almost like putting salt on the wound, basically. Mm. It's almost it's almost incomprehensible sometimes when you when you really because I think we're so used to situations being like oh right yes that's awful but when you when you really properly humanize a situation and you're like eleven year old Lee and a policeman saying that to you it's like what what <laughs> why what is like I don't have the words because I just think why wasn't the reaction oh my god what have we done <laughs> like, oh god this is awful this child and it's interesting like you said that's your screaming wasn't seen as i'm screaming for my mom it was seen as like oh oh god like well I, this is loud <laughs> how, how can we think it's like it's just it's disgusting i guess is the only word isn't it it's absolutely disgusting so she was shot in front of you i'm assuming um you know suddenly ambulances are involved and how, how what happened to you in that interim of the chaos of you and you know 11 year old in that situation so so just to explain to you uh, a little mm. bit about what happened on the day mm. so we'd fallen asleep in my mum's room i was in there my dad was in the room and my sister sharon was in the room and my mum had got well, there was a noise and my mum had got up and i saw her walking to towards the door so initially, whatever that was, I, I was still kind of half asleep and I saw her walking towards yeah. the bar for, okay, mum's taking care of it, laid back down. And then I had another loud bang and I jumped up this time and I saw my mum just laying on the floor um, bleeding, basically. And this, this, this man standing over her, shouting at her. And then, he, you know, once I started to scream hysterically um, at, this, at this officer, um, whose, whose name is um, Douglas Lovelock. He then, in turn, said what I told you. He said about mm. about telling me to effing shut up. Then my dad looked at me with fear in his eyes. And at that time, uh, my my dad used to be in the army, so I thought if he's scared in this mm. moment, then this must be serious. And that was the only time that the reality kicked in for me, and then I started to feel the fear of what was happening. So they rushed us out of the room, into the living room, and there was about 30 officers in the house, and dogs, oh my God. and guns. And I just felt like it was a bad nightmare. Mm. You know, I was just thinking, I need to wake up from this bad dream. And it was confusing. They had two female, late female officers who were trying to console us at the time, which was difficult because one breath you needed that, and then, mm. and then another this was coming from the same people who you just seen shoot your mum yeah you can't trust them right. can you you can't be like oh you're oh, a safe lady who's going to make me feel better you're like no no you're on that team like <laughs> exactly I can't completely relax can I yeah right. and immediately after the ambulance came they took my mum and they and my dad went into a police car behind mm. her because they wouldn't let him into the ambulance so therefore oh. we were just left in the house Oh my God. On our own, basically, um, with with the police. <sighs> that was crazy. I just, so, I just like, I hate the phrase I can't imagine, but I can't imagine because it's just, the fear, the fear that you must have felt, like, you're, like you said, that's proper nightmare, that's horror film, that's like, just, just awful. And I, I know you, you talked about, um, in your book, there was a moment where they told you she had died. Did that come from the police officers then, or was that...? It was on the news, basically. Um, oh, my God. Because the only updates we were getting was from the news. So none of the police officers in the house, we just kept asking, you know, what's happening, how's my mum? Mm. And nobody could give us any answers. So we just had the TV on in the living room, which was where we was getting updates from. And they had announced that my mum had died, which then, which was the thing that sparked the the uprisings. Mm. I mean, it's famously known as the riots, but I, you know, I, I prefer to refer to it as, a, as an uprising. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. I noticed you doing that, and I'm, I think you know, it's funny, isn't it? Like my brain was like, oh, 
the Brixton riots <laughs> no because it is an uprising yeah. you're right it, it, I think that there's a lot of conversation about that now obviously and if, if you haven't seen it there's lots of stuff on social media about changing the language of you know rioters and rioting because you're not rioting if something awful has happened you are yeah you know you are there is racism there is oppression and you are talking about that and I think the language we use is really important so yeah it, but it's so funny isn't it that in my head I had to go oh is that something I didn't know about I was like oh the bricks because we just use that phrase don't we and when you do use that phrase it doesn't have any of the nuances of cherry at the heart of it you just have this oh yes yeah, and people went around around and shouting you know who were not who were not white that's what that implies that phrase isn't it it's awful and and you're right he hit, hit on the head and i think especially in those in at that time you know the, mm. the media was really biased so mm. the narrative of the story was was really told through through their eyes mm. and not through the eyes of the people who were subjected to the yeah. um whatever you want to call it, racism, police brutality, mm. um, oppression. So for us, that's why it's so important for, for, to even tell the story, to even write a book. Yeah. So that finally you get to tell the story from your narrative and people get to hear it from a really human and first-hand um, experience. So, you know, there's layers. So when they say rioting, mm. you know, don't get me wrong, there's, there was aspects of that but mm. when, when you think about what was the trigger, these were people who were concerned and who were brave mm. enough to, to stand up and say, no, we're not gonna uh, allow this to happen. You know, we demand answers. We want to know what happened. We want to know why the police came into this woman's house and shot her in front of her, her four children. And I think if you, if you have any doubt, it is worth looking at the paper coverage of the time it is sho it's shocking it's really shocking and again i think it's so easy to be like oh you know things have changed and it, obviously things have changed but it wasn't that long ago and i remember looking at some newspaper coverage and, and i couldn't believe what i was reading because to me i was like god this is so overtly racist it's not even like there's not even like you know that kind of when you can sort of hear the tone and you're like, oh, I think I, I know what they're saying. I am live in this culture enough to read the subtext. But yeah, the papers at that time were extremely, it was clear, it was clear the racism, wasn't it? It wasn't even hiding it. So you found out, well, to be clear, your mum hadn't died at this point, at this juncture, but you hear this on the news. Were you with your brothers and sisters at the time when you heard that? So after my mum and my dad had left, it was myself, who was 11, my sister, Lisa, she was eight, um, my sister, oh. Sharon, who was 13, my eldest sister, Julia, who was 21 and six months pregnant, and, uh, oh. and my mum's <laughs> two, two children, who my mum was babysitting from the night before, who was seven uh, and an age two, a two-year-old. Oh so all of us was left in, 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 in the house. Now, when that came over the news, I ran into the kitchen and tried to get a knife because I and to try and slip my wrist because no, I thought to myself, my mum, my mum was my world at that point, mm. um, and, and, and still is, um, and I felt like if she weren't here, I didn't want to be here, right? Mm. And um, and you know, luckily, one of the um, female police officers grabbed a knife off of me. And then we heard another announcement on the, saying that she didn't die. So, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, like, as ever, I'm like covering my face and just like, how, at 11, trying to process, even processing a shooting in your, what is, you know, a home for an 11 year old is normally safe, normal, boring, like, that domestic world to even process people in your house people with guns in your house people who've shot your mum and then hearing that news and then oh no she's not like I can imagine thinking well I don't trust it right because you still haven't seen her I would still be like don't believe anyone like don't you, they have all proved to you that nothing is real nothing is safe everything you thought is gone like that must have just been terrifying it was and it took a couple of days before we could actually physically see my mum so oh, you know 
that those moments leading up to that was we couldn't we couldn't sleep. I mean, I, I remember mm. nights my siblings and I would just be sobbing in a melody, and like as soon as one person starts, the the rest start, and then it stops, and then it starts again, and through the whole night there was just mm. this kind of melody of sobbing through the night. So yeah, and and we, we couldn't communicate at the time really. We couldn't speak about what we had seen or what 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 had happened. Mm. You know, all we could do is we all knew how we felt, yeah, and and yeah. and that's what kind of kept us kind of together and united in yeah. a sense. But yeah, it was it was crazy. But you don't have the vocabulary as a child. I mean, so yeah. my dad died when I was fifteen of you know cancer was traumatic and sad but obviously completely not in the trauma levels that you're dealing with someone coming into your house in that way and yeah um and I think I I felt for a long time like I would go for the words and they just you just don't have them do you because the feelings are so big she's like god this is such a big feeling I I don't even because it is anger sadness fear like so many things at once as a child you're like I don't even know how to pick one out but for what you went through, I, of course, how could any of you, even your, you know, you said Juliet was like 20, 21, like she would have even had the vocabulary at that point to, um, to vocalise, oh, I'm really shocked. I don't know, I, you know, I feel like, because also, yeah, you, all of you must have just been complete shock, just, and which shock takes such a long time. That's the other thing I think you don't realise till you get older, like shock takes weeks, months, years for your body to kind of go, sorry, what just happened? Absolutely. And you mentioned my sister at 21, and as I said, she was six months pregnant. So her main concern was, you know, she's got a baby inside her. Mm. And, and that incident could have, you know, could have made yeah, her God, lose that God, baby, yeah. basically. Um, so, so yeah, so I suppose, in, in a sense, we were all just kind of dealing with our own feelings. Mm. And it wasn't two years later when my mum passed that I actually did an exercise with my sisters and said, I need you to write down how you felt you were affected by that incident. And that was the first time I actually understood what happened to them or how they saw things, because we saw things differently um, from a different angle. And also how that then manifests itself in terms of that trauma and the impact was different. And for the first time, I was able to have an insight into their world and it was sad. It was sad that I never knew this before and it, mm. and it was sad that these things happened and they never had the opportunity to to communicate um, what happened. And the same for them. They never knew what I'd gone through in terms of how I felt and how that then, how it manifested itself and um, impacted on my life. So it, it was quite crazy to, to, to go through that process. Yeah, Nicole, I completely understand it. it you know I think any grief any young grief takes years and years and years and Mm -hmm. from what I've read and I'm talking obviously about um much more usual circumstances of of a of a grief or a shock that when it happens sort of like you know for 10 to 20 that kind of teenage bracket you don't really process it till you get to kind of plus 30 because you're just in shock (laughs) and then you spend your 20s kind of going like hang on a minute what you sort of you're a bit more aware of it and then by 30 you're like I need to deal with this. I think all the problems come from that. But it, I think for so long, you just can't quite look at something because your brain is still like, it's still protecting you. And I experienced that, it, you know, that when you said that, I, I went through that, that process. Mm. Um, so in my, in my late 20s, coming up to just before I was 30, I, I hit a brick wall and I said, there was some cycles that I was going around in, especially in relationships. And I thought, I need to challenge this, I need to, you know, mm. so my neighbour at the time was a counsellor and she said she couldn't, you know, she couldn't give me therapy because we're neighbours, but she could introduce me to somebody, <laughs> and um, which she did and I went to see this person, I spent a year with them, but probably by the second session, I was able to, to join those dots, um, mm. which I never, up until that point, I thought, that whatever I was going through as an adult was an isolated situation. Um, mm. But it was then that I realised that those, those, you know, that, that childhood trauma 
was was creating these adult scars that I'm living with. So I was then at that point saying to myself, okay, now I understand how that incident back then is, is still affecting me today. Mm. Um, so it helped me to understand myself a lot more and I understand and to be able to detach what was, you know, what is the nature part of me and what is the nurture part of me, which is creating some of these cycles and some of these issues in my life. Yeah, and I think that phrase is really nice, join the dots, because I think I it's, I'm, can relate to that where you're like, oh no, this is just, this is nothing to do with that. It's nothing to do with what happened to me there. Like, this is, I'm just doing this now. And then slowly you step back and you're like, oh my God, of course, of course. <laughs> like, something as traumatic as what you and your siblings went through. Like, of course it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. But I think you spend a long time as a teenager and a 20 year old being like, no, no, no. It won't affect me. It won't define me. Like it's just a thing that happened. <laughs> you're like, anyone older is like, what? Of course, like how can it not? Like, so obviously, as you said, your mum, your mum didn't die at at that point, um, but she was obviously very, very seriously injured. So, um, as a result of my mum being shot by the police, she was now paralysed because oh. the bullet had um, lodged in her spine, and um, she became a paraplegic paralyzed from the from the waist down that had a huge impact on us you know this was mm. in the 80s there weren't this kind of like um you know the disability awareness that we have today yeah and there wasn't really the kind of support and access that we see today back in those days so we just had to kind of like trial and error you know just learn as we go along and i remember going to see my mum in hospital and the doctor saying you know, your mum's never going to walk again. Those words, you know, I just, it, I found it hard to accept. Mm. But in that moment, I knew that, okay, Lee, you got to man up now. You know, you can't no longer um, rely on your mum in the way that you used to. You've now got to be there for her. And so therefore, you know, I took that job really seriously. Mum went to Stoke Mandeville to be rehabilitated and then she came back to, to St Thomas's and I'd spend as much time with her as possible. Sometimes if I had a day off at school, I'd go to the hospital, go physio with her. I'd even, get my, I'd even put myself in the wheelchair and just to have a sense of what it was like for her. So that, it was very challenging. And she, I, I always speak about what happened to my mum as a slow death. I think from mm. that incident happened, you know, there was a process taking place where she was slowly dying. Um, mm. it, it was over a 26-year period. So to see someone deteriorate like that and to see their independence taken away. And my mum was a really high-spirited person. She loved music. She loved to dance. You know, she, she liked to go out. And so to see her life get cut short in that way and, and how that affected her as well and her mental well-being was, mm. was, was sad to see. And, you know, you say, like, this man up, which I, I understand, but you're still 11, aren't you? Like, at that point, it's like that is... It sounds like you did an amazing job of, of stepping up and being a son and being like, I'm going to be a brilliant, brilliant child for you. But to have that on your shoulders at 11, that weight must have been so, so hard. Like... You just I'm just picturing sort of like eleven year old Lee, like it's just there's a picture on your on your book, isn't it? And you just look like the sweetest <laughs> little boy. Big, big grin, like school picture. Like what a what a weight to have to carry from that point. Um I just wondering, I mean this is probably a stupid question, like did they offer you anything or your mum any form of counselling at the time? I mean, I know it's the eighties as well where like that it wasn't as much in the conversation. Did anyone say, this is very traumatic, you're going to need some help to deal with this? Or was it more like, oh, she needs physical rehabilitation and that's probably it? Just physical rehabilitation, yeah. that was it. Um, I went back to school two weeks later and no teacher, no adult ever asked me any questions about what happened. No one said, how are you? Do you want to talk about oh it? God. Nothing at all. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of... Um, meeting up with my form tutor and I asked him about the situation mm. and I said to him, I thought no one knew because no one ever mentioned it to me. And he says, he says, Lee, 
everyone knew. It was like when you came back to school, it was like you had a sign on your forehead. And he said, there were teachers who said, I don't want that. I had never met you, but I said, I don't want that boy in my class because he's going to be a problem. So A, pro- a problem? <laughs> basically. So a pro- but why? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That is just... Oh. It's really... Obviously, there's a lot of stuff at the moment and all of us as white people are having to face a lot of horrible, horrible truths. But to me, that's like the racism in that, that you were seen immediately as a problem and not as, that's a kid who's lost it, like his mom, what he's been through. That is just, that's, oh, I don't know. What can, it's just, it's not right. It's not right. I don't know what else to say. Right. So as you, as you say, it's sad that that was the view. And then there was, mm. he said, then there was other teachers who had a hands-off approach with you, who just said they're going to let you do whatever you want to do kind of thing and I, and I had a sense of that when I was at school where mm. there were things would, that would happen and I thought they weren't being dealt with in the way that you expect them yeah. to be dealt with and you're mm. and you're wondering why and um and as I said going back to what we said earlier about how the story was depicted so therefore you may have had people at that time who do just only read the newspaper and see the news and that's yeah. their their view of it is that your family created the problem. Mm. It's because of you why there was riots and Brixton got burnt down and this, that and the other. They're not looking at it as you are victims of this. Mm. Because that's the way the story's been told. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, also, it's so, context obviously is so massively important because, you know, I think mental health in 1985 wasn't a thing. But still, (laughs) even with that kind of kindness um i mean obviously what happened to you was so i guess it was so unique it was such a unique situation that you were the family i can see that people just don't know they don't have they don't like you're talking about this vocabulary people just don't have the teachers don't have any vocabulary but it's i i find it sad and maybe this is my white privilege talking i find it sad that nobody just like gave you a squeeze (laughs) or was just like that's awful if you ever want to be because I definitely had teachers try they sort of it was always a bit awkward (laughs) but they would sort of be well if you want to talk you you know you could and I was thinking I don't want to talk to you this is awful but I definitely I definitely I think the ignoring is a very um I think don't think it happens quite as much now but I definitely think it was the approach at that time wasn't it like just ignore it he doesn't need to deal with it at school. Something awful's happened, and school is not the place it's discussed. Whereas actually, of course, basically, yeah, was going to get support. Was their attitude, and there should have been some intervention because at that time there would have been some, some, something, something that could have yeah. been done. So I just think they didn't necessarily feel it was important enough to engage with. Mm. Um, no one was willing to really go out of their way, and it was only really my that same form tutor that I mentioned, who was the only mm. one who. He still didn't ask me about it, but he was the only one that I felt showed some compassion and he was mm. someone who did go out of his way. He would. He was the only teacher that ever went to my house and spoke to my mum about mm. what was going on for me at school um, because mum couldn't come to the school, so therefore, yeah. you, know, you know, parents' evenings and all those things, she, she could never attend. Um, so, yeah, so he was the only one that showed that kind of compassion outside of that no one you know you just felt like you were just totally ignored basically i think you're a bit of a miracle lee i think you're a bit of a miracle that you're sat there now smiling and happy and and have written a book like i think there's plenty of people that would have just gone the world doesn't care the world doesn't care about me how can i how can i rectify this in my heart and my soul right now and i'm i I can really you know i just want you just want to find good aren't you like i'm so glad that formed you to like you said the way of expressing compassion in 1985 was to visit your house <laughs> rather than speak to you it was like i'll visit the house and speak to his mother but like but that and it's is is a kindness there is a you can see that kind of where that thinking comes from and thank god somebody did even that say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
you'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. So you said your mum was paralyzed. You're all dealing with this incredible, incredible trauma, but obviously life just ticks along. When did you, when did the Cherry Gross, is the, when did the Cherry Gross Foundation sort of become your project or when did that happen? Was that quite soon or did it wait, you know, did that wait until you were much older for you to think, I'm going to try and make something positive come out of this? Well, two things happened. When, when the officer was acquitted from the court proceedings um, for shooting my mum, there was a sense of like real in, injustice. Like, and I said to my mum, how do you feel about this? Because I was really mm. upset. And she said, Lee, the, the, the police is a force and we can't fight the force or we can't be the force, she said. And there was this kind of sense of acceptance. And I felt like she... When, when was when was that, sorry, where, how many years, when was he acquitted? Was that quite soon after the... Two years after, so that was in 1987. So I felt like she did that because that was her way of coping with the situation. Mm. But for me, it didn't sit well with me and it was something that I felt... I didn't accept and it was something that I felt like I wanted to do something about one day. How, what, how that was going to manifest, I didn't have any a clue, but I just I knew in my heart that it was something that I, I was never going to accept. And then I used to see around Black History Month, there'll be all these stories that they talk about that go back as far as the 81 uprisings in Brixton. Mm. And then I would think they would skip over like what my mum's incident and I'd be like, how, you know, how is it that there's no real detailed information about what happened to my mum and there's no kind of personal account of that story? So there was, there was a burning desire from, from a teen to, 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 to write that, basically. And then it wasn't until my mum passed in, in 2011. Ironically, it was the same year that we had the... The, the uprisings around Mark Duggan. Yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, that's where all the hurt, the pain, grief, everything, trauma that we'd gone through just came flooding back when my mum passed. Because I think we learned to cope and suppress that. And because mum dealt with it in a certain way, we, mm-hmm. we followed suit. So in that moment, I felt like her uh, her life and what she went through has to stand for something mm. and there was no way that I was going to just allow her to just 
you know, to be forgotten in that way. So that's where I, the drive and determination came from to say, okay, I wanna, how do I, how do I keep her memory alive? How do I make sure a legacy lives on? How do I make sure that what happened to her stands for something and that people can take something and learn something from this? You know, what's the different ways, I, vehicles I can use to do this? And that's one of them was the foundation. I thought, okay, if we set this foundation up, primarily when we set up the foundation, it was to look at how we support people with disabilities. Because I mm. felt like, you know, all my life I've been a carer. I know this inside out through you know first-hand experience so therefore maybe all the things that I you know took me so many years to know and learn and understand how now could I help that help somebody else understand that earlier how can I help people to become more active more independent benefit from the fact that London has become more accessible yes they could be doing more but there's a lot that people can do now but there's, a, there's, there's people who are still kind of trapped at home, believing in their head that they can't engage with society now, that they've kind of given up. How can we give those people some hope? So that's where that setting up the foundation came from. And then when we had the glimmer of the inquest into my mum's death, which would allow us to reinvestigate and re-explore what had happened to her, all, all that hurt, anger, pain and and grief that I was feeling, I, I put all that energy into that process um, and I said to myself I'm just going to throw myself into this and just hope for the best <laughs> and, yeah. and and thankfully we got the right result that, you know, what happened to my mum was wrong it was a failure on, the, on, on um, by the Metropolitan Police and we finally got an apology to engage with those failures. Um, unfortunately, the person who need, most needed to hear that, who's my mum, was no longer here. But I, it was the greatest gift that I could give her in her absence, basically. It's such a bittersweet thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, I'm so glad they apologised years later. There's <laughs> like, like part of me that's like, oh, good, good, not good, not good enough. It's the bare, it's the bare minimum. It's the bare minimum. It's just... I think that's incredible that you were able to channel that and to have I think also what you said I completely understand that there's this sort of because your mum you know like you said she did live for so long and they set the tone they set the tone of like this is how we're going to deal with this of course you and your siblings have to go okay well you know she wants to lead this path of right acceptance and we get on with it because she wants to just live her life you have to sort of park it don't you park all these feelings and like you said then 2011 when she does pass this box is there of like oh those are all those feelings <laughs> what do I do with them so when she passed was it due to the complications or was it just like you said this were you with her when she passed away so she passed on Easter Sunday oh. and mum spent a lot of time in the hospital so she'd be in and out of hospital to the point where yeah, yeah. it was normal for us so we wouldn't even tell anybody that she was in mm. hospital anymore so she's in the hospital and we're thinking she's going to go in spend maybe a week or two and be back at home as usual. But this time she took a turn for, for the worse. So my younger sister, Lisa, we would normally go to the hospital every day, right? Um, and what had happened on this particular day, my niece was christening her, her, her daughter that day. So we said, okay, we're not gonna go to the hospital today. So we're just gonna call in and say, mm. um, just check on mum and we'll go and see her the following day. So we called in and the nurse says, okay, um, that's fine, you can come tomorrow, mum's stable. Um, however, the doctor did want to speak to you, but I'm sure it could wait till tomorrow. So I thought, mm, I don't like the sound of that. So I said, let's just go up there for half an hour, see the doctor, mm. and then we'll go go to the, to, to the blessing. So got there and we was in the room with the doctor and he started speaking and from when he started to speak the first few lines I knew what he was trying to say to me and he he basically said you know I've read your mum's files I've seen what she's gone through and you know, her organs are failing and what do you think your mum would want right now 
and basically putting that question to me about you know whether or not we should basically allow her to just pass mm. or would would she want us to do everything in our power to fight even if it means she'll be like on dialysis for the rest of her life yeah yeah and it was a horrible position to be in because you're saying to yourself okay you're trying to choose between what you would want and what you think your mum would want and they and they yeah. and they're different because two weeks before I, I knew what the answer was because two weeks before I left, I was in the hospital and just before I was leaving, mum just looked out through the window and she said, Lee, I just want to be free. And I've never heard her say that before. You know, wow. she was a fighter. She was, you know, I never heard her speak in a way of like giving up. So when I heard that, it was like it didn't register at first and I was walking down the, mm. the hospital corridor thinking, did she really just say that? I've never heard her say that before. So when the doctor asked me that question, I really instinctively kn- I knew the answer. <sighs> She'd already told you. She'd already yeah. told me. Yeah. Um, so I grappled with it for a little while, called all the family, <clears throat> and you know, ultimately they just looked at me and said, "Lee, we think you should, you and Lisa should make the decision because we we were the main carers." And then Lisa said, I'm not making it, you need to make it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) Exactly. So I prayed about it. Oh, (laughs) cheers. Exactly. So I prayed about it. And then, yeah, we we made the decision to just allow her to slip away naturally that day. Mm. And um, and we were all there um, at her bedside. Yeah, it was, it's, it's a feeling that it's hard to even describe, but I was just so present in that moment mm. and um i was I, in my words to my mum was was something along the lines of i want to do everything that i can to to make sure that you know what you've been through is 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 recognized and i didn't know how i had no mm. clue that there was going to be an inquest i had no clue about you know coming up with this idea of a foundation or a memorial or or, or even this book it was just that a raw desire to do something to make sure that mm. she uh, this this wasn't in vain I, I, I'm in danger of always looking for good but I think it's really I think it's really amazing that she said that to you and you heard it because I hear so many stories where it didn't get heard or it didn't get said and um, I had a friend pass away recently who was a palliative care nurse and she was an amazing amazing woman and um, I've I talk about a lot on the show because she was so brilliant and she was a real advocate of of advanced care planning when I first met her I was like you know what is that and she was like anybody can tell anyone you can make a plan for what you know so you don't get hooked up to machines for the rest of your life and because obviously she spent a lot of time looking after people who were like totally being kept alive by a machine rather than because they hadn't had that conversation and she was a real advocate of like have these chats I know it's so hard and you know, then very sadly something happened to her and they were able to put in her plan, which was don't try and keep me alive. I don't want I don't want to. And it's a really painful thing. And I think, God, especially for you, after having cared for her for so long and helped her fight and kept her going for her then to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. Like, it's OK. And for that, for you to hear that, like, I think just you know credit to her for raising a good son and credit to you <laughs> for being a good son like that you were brave enough to hear it brave enough to go yeah she's ready that's okay that's okay we've you know because I think especially when you like you said that fight and drive to survive that you must have all had to have to cope with a situation which people weren't talking about was not being reported properly all of the things that should have happened hadn't have happened so to to like yeah it's funny though isn't it because I guess it perhaps you at that point thought oh this is the end of the journey but it wasn't because like you said then you were then able to then right I can now do all these things and you mentioned it there there is a memorial to Cherry and it's when is it it's coming in September that's right isn't it it's yeah it will be revealed the, the aim was that it was supposed to be erected that um in the, on the 20th of September which would have been the 35th anniversary of when the shooting happened um, right it may be slightly delayed and it's probably going to be more October now. But yeah, I think, how can I put it? At the time, and I 
and I've done everything in the same vein. So everything mm. I've done is it's been with mum at the forefront. Okay, what would mum want? You know, what was she like? And I've always tried to incorporate that into everything that I do. And so far, it hasn't failed me in, in, in that respect. And as I said, when, when we was in the hospital and the question was, was asked, that was the first time that I was in, you know, in direct conflict about what well, she yeah. would want and what I would want. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, selfishly, you, you know, you want to do everything to keep the person that you love the most mm. To be here, right? You, you, you're going to want to do everything you can. But mm. to think about that person and put them first and think, what would that person really want? And the way that the doctor phrased it as well, you know, to say, what do you think your mum would want? Mm. As I said, I really knew the answer to that question. So therefore, yeah. it was just about doing the right thing and making sure that I put her first rather than mine or our feelings first in a, in, a, in a sense of just doing whatever we could to save her um, even though life was going to be um, more difficult than what it was and it was and it was tough already for her you know yeah. she she was in constant pain because of the fragment was was um, some of the fragments were still in her spine so that caused her <sighs> constant pain she was getting bed sores she was getting um she had diabetes now she was going to the hospital more regularly she was getting infections and all this was as a result of that incident as a result of that shooting um her conditions were just getting worse and worse it's just it's such a lot you, the whole the incident itself is such a lot and i think also it's really important i'm so grateful for you for speaking about it for writing about it because again to remind people that it's not just a shooting because you know what I mean you could have that oh yeah there was a shooting there was an uprising and then there wasn't anymore la 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 like it's like she had fragments left in her body like literally the aftershocks of that event carried on and on and on and on and on and will carry on and have affected you and all of that which is why the irony of being a sort of you know 20 something and thinking like oh I'm not affected by this it's just something that happened is like how can you how can you not be how could she not be how could you all not be affected by physically mentally spiritually all of that stuff it's just and I you know I've been reading a lot lately about complicated grief yeah you're, I'm just wondering about your grief and how your grieving process because it wasn't yeah like you said you suddenly all that stuff that had happened why she had had these problems must have then like and, and the trauma of the 11 year old Lee must have suddenly been very very visceral to you after she had gone yes so what had happened we you know, what happens is, you know, in a process like this, and probably a lot of people can relate to, to this who have had a loved one um, pass, is that you get into this autopilot mode where you're just doing, you're organising, you're organising a funeral, and that keeps you busy. And then we had the funeral, and then I remember going back to the cemetery the day after the funeral, and the cemetery was locked, and I jumped over the fence, the gate and went to my mum's grave and it was just me in the cemetery and I was able to just express myself and I remember just having this outburst it was almost like a rage or a rant and just mm. how I felt and I almost felt like that 11 year old kid again yeah, yeah. in terms of you know what was coming up for me and I was so angry and hurt about what had happened to her so it wasn't the loss necessarily it wasn't just about the fact that I've lost my mum it was the fact that of what she went through the life that she had to mm. live how she suffered so all of that for me where I've learned to suppress just came up mm. and and in that moment I was I was basically making a commitment to her and I was praying that there was, cause there was this glimmer of the inquest at that time. And I was just praying that this glimmer manifests into something that I can really pour all of this energy into. Cause if I, if not, I didn't know where it was gonna go. Yeah, I had no yeah, clue yeah, of, of where all this anger was gonna, go, was gonna go and all this, you know, this kind of grief that I was feeling. So because it did lead somewhere, I had something to channel my energy into. Mm. And 
that's going through that whole cycle and getting the results that we got in the end has helped me with my process. It's helped me to find some peace within myself um, in terms of what I've, what we've gone through, what we've witnessed. There's that big still sense of loss where yeah, of course. she was such a big part of our life and we will never forget her in that respect. But at least now when, when my, my siblings and I gather, we can smile, we can laugh, we can remember some of the good things, you know, about mum and some of the fun that we had and the laughs that we used to have because it wasn't, we used laughter to cope. We, you know, we, it wasn't like every day was just like a, a hard, challenging day for us where we just, you know, everybody was sad. No, there were times when, you know, we would, we would have to raise our spirits somehow through cracking a joke or um, creating an, a vibe or atmosphere in the house and playing music and bringing the party to, to you know, we couldn't bring mum to the party, so we brought the party to mum. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, we had to deal with it in all those different ways. So I think that must have been so important. And um, So she passed in 2011. When, when did you have the final inquest? What year was that? How many years did you have sort of? So the inquest happened in 2014. So it was a long journey and- A long journey. You know, it started, the first obstacle we had was getting legal aid to be active in that inquest. So we got denied three times and we ended up doing a petition and in the end getting over 130,000 people to sign that petition, went to 10 Downing Street, presented that petition and then two weeks, I think it was a week later, they overturned the decision and we got access to legal support. So at every step of the way, there was a challenge basically, mm. right? The amount of hoops we had to jump over, the amount of time that went past, and they already knew that as well because mm. there was this report that highlighted their failures anyway, um, which was done by a really uh, a senior officer. So therefore, it was always there. It wasn't like we mm. discovered some new evidence yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, it was Some magical there. key. It was like, oh, that is a video of it. Oh, right. It's like, of course they all, everybody knew, right? There's right. just this weird sense of trying to avoid saying I was wrong, which that's what's sad, isn't it? It's like, right. if you just start from a position of like, obviously we're wrong. How do we make it better? Rather than like, well, we're going to give you we were 10% wrong. But we're not going to give you 100%. Because like, actually, no, like, you know what I mean? It's like arguing about things. And the, and <laughs> And it's the same system that says to you that tries to encourage you mm. us the people that number one don't do wrong and if you are mm. if you do do wrong put your hands up because if you put your hands yeah. up we're going to be more lenient right but you don't do that when you're wrong right and they've yeah. got this kind of way around sort of damage limitation where you know they don't want yeah. people to see that they do things wrong because they seem, then they think that the people, they'll be undermined or, you know, people would lose confidence. But it's the other way around. The yeah, more yeah. you're able to say, all right, we effed up, we got it wrong, we'll put, we apologize, and we're prepared to learn from that and put things in place to make sure it doesn't happen again, is the more we have confidence in you. Again, testament to you and your family and Cherry that you had that, spirit to keep fighting that you didn't give up that you carried on because it would have been very easy just to walk away when you when no one is listening correctly how can you know that's that's where madness lies just keeping saying the same thing and someone going you're wrong it didn't happen it didn't happen like that is a form of yeah gaslighting control like yeah how how do you cope with that i completely understand going well we're just gonna keep our heads down and carry on then because what we're hearing is not what happened <laughs> Exactly, and there and there are a lot of people who do give up, and it's you can understand why. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, because let's just say, for instance, I went through all of that, and we were talking today, and I had no results. Mm. Um, I don't know how I would be, how I'd feel. I don't even know if I'd be able to communicate in the way that I'm communicating yeah. today about it. So there is a risk that you could, you know, there could be a further injustice mm. that you could further damage. You know, there could be. Um, 
in, in terms of what you've gone through now on top of it you've done everything you can to get the acknowledgement for what's happened and you still don't get it and there, there's people in that position today mm. so we're like one of the very few mm. examples that you could use where where you've had this kind of enlightening and where we can speak from a place of strength now and say okay this happened it was wrong everyone knows it was wrong now the police have apologized and now we've actually got some restorative justice outcomes to help us to ensure that this doesn't happen again mm. that lessons can be learned and we can have a better society moving forward so for for example i've got my youngest is eight and when she sees the police she 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 gets scared right and that's because she knows she's aware of the story mm. right we, i was walking with her the other day in um up in the west end and a police officer just said oh hello you know you know he was a nice guy yeah, yeah. and she just clammed up and wouldn't even respond and i said to her why didn't you say hello and she said dad i'm scared of the police and I've got to try and balance that somewhat. Yeah. I don't want her to be constantly scared of the police. I want her to know that she could call on them when she needs them because mm. they are there to serve. Um, however, she has got a personal story that does conflict yeah. that image yeah. of the, the nice Bobby on the street. So the only way we can deal with that is to make sure that now we've got stories to tell mm. of how things have changed, okay? That that terrible thing happened to your grandmother, but as a result of that now, this is in place, that's in place, and this is, you know, there's better policing because of X, Y, Z. I want to be able to tell them those, those stories and to give them confidence mm. and I, to give others as well. Yeah, and I think what you said, I think you said it right at the beginning, is so important that the narr- all narratives are heard. Because I think that is like, I can't, I just, and the more I do this show, the more I'm like, humans need stories. That's how we understand everything. Like, if we don't have a story, we don't understand it. And like, you can, you know, there's thousands of examples of this. And the story that was told about Cherry in that situation, it was so important that your narrative, the inquest changed that. And now this book, The Louder I Will Sing, will change that. And that's enabling, like you said, your children to hear this other side and to know the foundation is changing that. You know, you, you have put, people are aware, they admit they're wrong so that it won't happen, hopefully, hopefully it won't happen again. Obviously, as you said, there are lots of people still fighting for their cases. And, you know, obviously there's a case in America very similar, the Breonna Taylor case. Those narratives are so important that we have that story, that we have your story, that you did get that inquest. And they did say, they did, admit the truth <laughs> they've done something wrong but it's the f- yeah it's I really feel for you as a f- as a parent in that situation because you don't want your daughter to be you know you want her to know yeah call, something happens call 999 like like that's what you need like you should feel that but also yeah of course you don't want to deny the truth is what that happened and I guess all you can do is move forward with positivity where you can but not deny that it happened not not talk about it like you said like what happened at school like ignoring it doesn't make it it doesn't mean it didn't happen exactly and um you know one of my because as, as well as fighting for my past which is my mum then and acknowledging what happened and what we went through mm. as a family there's also the fighting for the future yeah and uh, i'm determined to make sure that the residue doesn't live on in, yeah. In, in 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 say in my children, yeah. then I want the I want them to see the world in a different way, but at the same time, that can only happen if it is different. Mm. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't want to sell them a dream that. Yeah. You know, re, uh, this kind of, you know, it's fantasy. fixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but as you said, we got to find some balance within that mm. that they can have some confidence. But, but also know that police can do, you know, there are some police who shouldn't be police officers mm. and do do terrible things. And and what we want to see, as I say, is some accountability. We may never get rid of it, rid of it completely, mm. but if we're dealing with the problem, then that's the next step that I want to see, that these officers are being held accountable yeah. for their actions and that the, the, the police as an institution are doing their best to change that culture mm. because 
it's been acceptable for too long. Mm. And, you know, we want to see that. We want to see a difference. You know, and, it, and really, it's not too much to ask for. And it, it makes the work society a better place. No one wants to see officers in the police who are abusing their power and who are biased and are not policing fairly mm. and equally. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I see things. Yeah, I think, yeah, you put it really well. It's like it's, you don't want to sell a dream because it's not true, but you, but you do want to offer, a, reali- offer a, a, a workable reality, I suppose, of like, yeah, you know, in any industry, there'll be people who are biased or racist or not nice or will do bad things. In any industry, you, you know, no one is all good. The important thing here is that the police industry, the police world, when they do bad things, it can have very serious consequences. <laughs> and therefore, the accountability needs to be very, very high and very monitored and very careful because what we're dealing here isn't with like, you know, what I deal with like, oh, that comedian wasn't very funny. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, I can't get my money back. Oh, well, it's like we're dealing with de- death and life here. Lee, Absolutely. thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. It's an extraordinary thing that you've been through and... I just, I just think you've dealt with it incredibly bravely and beautifully. And I don't mean that as a, oh, therefore it was a wonderful thing that happened. It obviously wasn't. And I just think the book is called The Loud I Will Sing. It's out on the 17th of September. And hopefully, hopefully you'll be able to have the memorial ceremony <laughs> with yes. some, some people there and some, you know, whether they're standing two metres apart. But it, it, the main thing is it, it is going to be there in Brixton. That's right, isn't it? That's right, yeah. in Windrush Square in, in Brixton, part yeah. of Brixton. Yeah, a very yeah. important place in Brixton, so it's amazing that that, that that has happened. Yeah, thank you for talking to me about your journey and Cherries as well. Thank you for having me. And I'm sorry we didn't, we didn't even get to talk about your dad as well. What was your dad's name? So my dad's name was Leo. So Cherry and Leo, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You can follow Lee on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Lee Lawrence. His book, The Louder I Will Sing, is out on the 17th of September 2020 and is available from all good bookshops. If you would like more information about the Cherry Gross Foundation, please head to www.cherrygross.org and they have a GoFundMe as well as part of the Cherry Gross Memorial. So if you'd like any more information on the memorial or when the service is happening at Windrush Square, do head to the website. You can follow Griefcast on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland, music by The Glue Ensemble, artwork by Jade Perkin, and remember, you are not alone. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.